Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many tech media publications. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. I'm here with Vala Afshar, as you know, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top people we follow for CEOs, CMOs, and CIO advice on Twitter. And of course, a best-selling author, a business commentator, and of course, an excellent keynote speaker. But it's not about us. We're talking about what's happening in the world, what's going on, and we have some very special guests and a very, very relevant topic. So who do we have today, Vala? Ray, please bear with me for the next couple of minutes because I did my best to shorten the bio of these three extraordinary guests, uh, but you got to give me at least a couple of minutes. We're, we're gonna all start right, all right. With, uh, uh, Mr. Vinton Cerf, Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google. He contributes to global policy development, continuing the spread of the internet, widely known as one of the fathers of the internet, uh, Mr. Surf is the co-designer of the TCP IP protocol and the architecture of the internet. Mr. Surf uh, served as chairman of the board of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, and has been a visiting scientist at the Jeffrey Fortune Laboratory. Mr. Surf served as the founding president of the Internet Society. Mr. Surf is the recipient of numerous awards uh, in connection with his work in the internet, including U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom, U.S. National Medal of Technology, Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, and ACM Touring Award, which some consider the Nobel Prize for Computing. Mr. Surf is an officer of the Legion Honor and holds 29 honorary degrees. People Magazine identified Mr. Surf as the 25th, 25 most intriguing people in the world. You can follow his work on Twitter at VGSurf, C-E-R-F. Welcome, uh, Vince Surf, to Disrupt TV. Big welcome. And uh, our, our next guest. Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I actually just, my wife just told me that uh, we have a leaking cooling system in the wine cellar and it is uh, all over the place. I will be back as quickly as I can, but I, this is a real emergency. So Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you in a bit. We'll take you out for a second. Uh, it's that type of year, folks, 2020. Uh, <laughs> our next guest, uh, we're delighted to have Dr. Melissa Flagg. Uh, senior fellow at the Center of Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. Previ previously, Dr. Flagg served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research, responsible for policy and oversight, uh, Defense Department science and technology programs, including basic research through advanced technology development and the DOD laboratory enterprise. Dr. Flagg has worked at the State Department, the Office of Naval Research, the Office of Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, and John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation in Army Research Laboratories. Dr. Flagg has also ran her own consulting business and was Chief Technology Officer of a consumer startup. 
Dr. Flagg has served on numerous boards, including National Academy of Science Air Force Studies Board and the Department of Commerce Emerging Technology Research Advisory Committee. Dr. Flagg is, the board, uh, is on the board of Humanity 2050 and full trustee with the DC chapter of the Awesome Foundation. You can follow Dr. Flagg's work at Flagster73, F-L-A-G-G-S-T-E-R 73. Welcome, Dr. Flagg, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. That Twitter handle was made before I thought anyone would ever know me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's an awesome. amazing handle. I was trying to get Vala, but I'm not an early adopter, so it was long taken. Uh, and our last guest, which you know he has co-hosted Disrupt TV, has uh, appeared numerous times. But Dr. David Bray, Director of Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at the Atlantic Council, Dr. Bray accepted the leadership role December of 2019 in a new global center with the Atlantic Council. Business Insider named him uh, one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world under 40. Dr. Bray was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Uh, from 2017 to 2020, Dr. Bray served the Executive Director of People-Centered Internet Coalition. Uh, Dr. Bray is a Marshall Memorial Fellow. He's a recipient of the National Intelligence Exceptional Achievement Medal, Arthur S. Fleming Award, Roger W. Stone Award for Executive Leadership. He's also an Eisenhower Fellow. He's a former CIO of the Federal Communication Commission, where he's received the Global CIO 100 Award twice. And that's an incredible, rare achievement. You can follow his team's work on Twitter at ACGE. O-T-E-C-H, uh, AC Geotech. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Bray to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. Always great to be here with you and great to be here with Melissa and Vint as soon as he can join us back. Absolutely. Thank and you. and one of our best special co-hosts as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Excellent. So we, we got a bunch of topics to talk about today. And we're going to start with a couple of things. But for the audience that's falling around, we're going to talk about big disruptions empathy and digital companies and of course avoiding polarization as we think about moving forward so let's start and talk about the importance of connectivity and access um how's this changed i mean we're seeing it in work from home remote work revolutions but who's not included and who should be you want to go first melissa i'll jump in um i i think this has been a real eye-opener especially as parents have gone home and tried to juggle their kids needing to be connected while they're connected and i think we've seen a progressive widening of the inequality of uh, that connectivity actually brings to society um but i think we see some great opportunities as well we're starting to see discussions about should connectivity be a public utility um we really we bring access to folks. I also think that we should start highlighting some of the incredible um, actions that have already been taken out there in the country. Iowa, I think, has been a real pioneer in this, interestingly. They have the Iowa Wireless Network, so that schools and hospitals and libraries are connected because they, they understood early on that as a rural area, they weren't going to have access for all their citizens. I think we've seen this in interesting private, public-private partnerships in cities. But I think that now's this moment that we have to lean in and realize we probably need to take that one step further uh, if we really want to change the way we think about education for everyone, if we really want to lift our ability to bring more people into the workforce, if we really want to get serious about inclusivity, uh, we can't have half the people in the country unable to be a part of the conversation. 
That's a great point. And in fact, if we recall, uh, we were all uh, privileged to, 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 to get together late uh, 2019 to celebrate 50% of the human population accessing the internet. It's, so it's amazing to think that, you know, you have 3.7 uh, you know, billion that are yet to access the internet. And we know K-12 schools in the U.S., uh, a, a fairly significant percentage do not have Wi-Fi internet connectivity. So your thoughts about how do we shift to a purely distributed digital world since uh, February of this year and potentially throughout the remainder of the calendar year and beyond and be able to provide education to you know students that may not have access to the internet. It's, it's just, it's inconceivable to me. It's, it's hard to wrap my mind around that being in Boston and being part of the privileged few that does have access uh, to Wi-Fi and internet. So uh, is it okay to jump in on this point? Please, oh, yeah, uh, please, please, please jump in. The, the wine cellar thing is not a total disaster, but it needs some attention. Uh, so thank you for your accommodation. Uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. First one is that the pandemic, of course, has highlighted the fact that we need better internet access everywhere, especially in places where it isn't or where it's inadequate. Uh, and that's good. I mean, that creates a certain amount of uh, motivation uh, to look to invest in, uh, in uh, repairing that. The second thing is that uh, some places have actually used the school buses uh, to provide Wi-Fi capability. Uh, so while you're going to and from school, and in some cases, the buses are parked in the uh, neighborhoods in order to continue to supply at least some uh, amount. The third thing is that uh, libraries are often using either TV white spaces or uh, other, you know, 5G or 4G anyway. Um, uh, you can rent or, or get from the library a hotspot. And I'm starting to see uh, a few more examples of startups that are providing these things uh, gra you know, gratis uh, in order to at least provide some capability while we get the real build out to happen. So I think the, the recognition that we need to do something has been uh, emphasized by the fact that people can't go to school, they have to have remote access. Terrific. And, and what I like about what Vince said is uh, uh, when we were th with the People Centered Internet, uh, we were working with empowering Native Americans to basically have uh, both agency and choice about how they brought broadband to their communities and then how they would use it for health and education. And we did succeed uh, with one of the uh, tribes leading the way for the most remote, one of the most remote tribes on the continental 48 United States in the base of the Grand Canyon. Uh, they succeeded in getting broadband. It was actually led and sustainable uh, by them. And so I think that's a model that we can use for, for the rest of the country. The other thing that I would also share is I'm seeing cases where companies are going to schools and saying, which of your students are having challenges getting access to internet at home? And they'll just basically say, no questions asked, we'll just basically help provide that. Now, questions about, is that sustainable? Does that need to be picked up with something that's a little bit more, more long-term? But that's a case of where industry is recognizing that almost like how we now take, you know, who would not have a road going to your house? Um, you know, we need to have, similar to how roads are sort of ubiquitous, we need to think about how can we provide this for everyone to have access? Because if they don't, it will only widen the divide when it comes to education and will be further behind. One interesting opportunity that I think this really brings us in education is rethinking how we bring people into schools that traditionally had trouble attracting teachers. Um, I was actually talking to someone here that I would I would love to be teaching an hour a day or every other day for a, a sort of underserved school in DC. I'm doing it from my house, from my laptop. 
um, the, the way we start to think about sharing curriculum across these uh, types of, of schools that have similar challenges in urban areas across the country or in rural areas, um, how the opportunity to actually bring rural and urban areas together to talk about shared history through different lenses. Um, it's such an incredible moment of stress and pressure, but um, I think stress and pressure in the biological system is sort of how we keep things from growing out of control. Uh, there's actually pressure on cells, it's how mm. the size of the cells, right? And, and it's kind of how you avoid cancer, and cancer is what happens when it's just out of control. So this idea that stress and pressure can have a positive side can actually bring us to a more controlled, more uh, well-balanced system is really real. And I'm excited that I think we're finally getting to the point where we are coming out the other side of being so intensely blown back by all of the change and starting to see this real innovative, typical American spirit of like, oh, something out of this um, seeming mess. And I think there are real opportunities for curriculum and teaching and serving underserved communities more effectively using this technology. So, oh, Melissa, that's a great point. Oh, Vint, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm sort of extrapolating from what Melissa just said. Uh, first of all, um, I would say that the ability to um, engage this way is partly dependent on where you live and what the local conditions are. I mean, you know, if you have a space that's quiet and you could set up high-speed internet and you have you know things properly arranged, you can participate as we are right now. On the other hand, what's going on right now in K through 12 is trying to replicate the classroom experience online, which may be a mistake. Uh, it, for certain things, it's very good because it allows somebody to show up in the classroom without having to travel, which means you may have access to people you wouldn't normally have access to. Second, uh, what we're seeing for some of these online events like this one is a substantially higher attendance because you didn't have to travel uh, because of the convenience except for the fact that time zones are still an issue. Uh, so, you know, that's a, a sort of the counterbalancing thing. Uh, but there is a third thing that we should be concerned about. And Melissa, I'd like to test this on you, especially. Um, I think that if we are going to invest heavily in these online environments, then we ought to be trying to use them for more individualized learning. It is not easy to set up a, uh, a class, uh, you know, a, a, what do we used to call them? Um, a, you know, a, a large, what, oh heck, I've forgotten the acronym for some reason, but it's- Massive online, online course. It's the MOOCs, Massive Online uh, Courses. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that's intended, could be intended uh, for uh, individualized learning. But in order to do a really good job of it, not only do you have to prepare and present the material that you're supposed to learn, but you also have to figure out what they're not understanding. And then you have to test for that. And then you have to do the remedial material. So you have to know all the ways in which the students won't understand the material in order to prepare. And so it actually, it's hard work. But the idea here that we might take advantage of the online environment for a different kind of classroom, I think is very important. My, my sense, my sense is that um, that uh, this distributed digital world that we've entered since February um, um, will shift the higher ed model from an Apple iOS uh, model to an Android model. Uh, meaning, I can take the best accounting course at one school, the best science course at another, 
and my best humanities course. So in other words, I may be able to have accreditation from multiple universities where I can attend different environments to, and, and shape my learning path, not just with one institution. So my sense is that there's an opportunity there for universities to collaborate and create this open system versus a closed system that exists today. So, well, yeah, that's a really interesting challenge because you have to figure out how to make sure the accreditation works and your yes. record works and you know, how do you evaluate taking a class from MIT and a class from the local community college and you know what's the, uh, what's the, what's the metric. Um, and there may even have to be, I don't know about legislation, but there might have to be some uh, procedural uh, changes which you apply uh, in order for that to work for the student. Right. And actually, I, I, would actually, that a... uh, I was just going to interject real quick. Two thoughts about what was just said by Vala and Vint and Melissa is one, huge opportunity to do more experiential learning. Because again, if we talk about how you know video, while it's great, it's kind of hard to scale. And so what it might be is you could assign assignments to students and maybe even send them something in the mail where they actually put something together, they do something like that, and then they do a show and tell about their project or even send it back. And so it could be much more sort of experiential based where you're combining both the, the virtual but also the real. The one thing that I think we should also be conscious of though is telemedicine tried to do medical health, uh, specifically mental health issues over telemedicine. And they eventually concluded that even with the highest of definition of videos, there's just a, not enough granularity to figure out mental health issues remotely. And so that's one thing that I think we need to be very mindful of is things that are gonna involve sort of understanding what's really going on with somebody's mental state it might be that we've got to either figure out a new way to do it digitally or look for alternatives because it seems like even with high definition video, you're just not able to get those tells um, from a patient that actually can inform their mental health. Yeah, and there's a lot, another piece around, you know, not just the didactic or experiential learning, it's also the social skills and it's mm -hmm. also the growing, right? And what we're not doing is we're, we're in one-to-many mode. We're doing broadcasts. We're also not designing for serendipity. And back to the original conversation mm -hmm. about having personalized one-on-one -on -one conversations, it's the availability of a tutor, the availability of having a conversation, the availability of people to actually be in the right place uh, so, so you can have those side conversations and learn from someone you normally wouldn't have met. And it sounds oxymoronic to design for serendipity, but those opportunities aren't there because these are full broadcast modes, very in, very weird to be able to have this you know, offhand conversation, someone's walking through and you're like, hey, what's going on? What do you think? Can't do that right now. So, so it's yeah. how do you build for that? research going on in this space with that human machine, like what's the balance? I think the army thinks about this a lot actually, right? Is they, like we're on the ground, we're interacting, it's a messy, confusing space and we have all of this machinery being brought in and we have to interact with it. What makes us worse in the real world and what makes us better and what does that teaming look like? And what's the balance between human and machine? And I think there's a lot, I take a lot of inspiration from that when I think about even this problem. I can imagine labs being that aren't just chemistry labs or STEM, but they're civics labs or they're business labs. And you go with a group from your area and meet some business leaders and interview them. And then we come back together, maybe in a virtual environment to share some of those takeaways. But maybe you also get together with a group of people you wouldn't necessarily have been in class with before in your area as well. 
uh, a lot of what we're seeing post-pandemic in, I think, many places, I'll, I'll just speak for some of the D.C. area, is you're only going to be in the classroom two days a week as a student because we need more social distancing. So maybe those other three days, we begin to develop curriculum that allow you more this mix of sort of just like give me the information broadcast style. Some of it that smaller group or Khan Academy type things. I think they've done great things. I mean, my nieces know more math and computer skills now <laughs> only because of the pandemic because my brother was like, I'm a nuclear engineer and finally I can make them do whatever I want, right? Like they're stuck at home with me. Um, but this mixture of things that I think allows for both of these to come together, but there is research to be done here. And I think that if we could take that seriously, as Ben said, this is hard. This is a new kind of teaching. It's not just trying to replicate what we had online. It's actually well, trying to develop a new sort of personalized education, like we think about personalized medicine. Well, let me segue to the conversation about, you know, does more digital technology make us more social or less social? And what point do we balance out face-to-face -face interactions <laughs> and engagement? I'm going to vent. Vint's got an enthusiastic hand wave. Well, actually, I, I mean, I was thinking about exactly this. Um, there's, a, there's a book uh, written uh, uh, by a gal at uh, MIT called Alone Together. Um, and uh, Sherry Turkle. The author and in it she makes the observation that kids who are using mobiles and who are texting have learned a different uh, uh, social uh, behavior pattern than the ones that we learned when we were talking on the phone as teenagers or face to face. What they learned is that it's okay not to respond to a text. And so if somebody texts you something and you know what to say, you just don't say anything. And you're forgiven for that because they assume you got distracted or whatever it was. So uh, you don't learn uh, to cope with the kind of the immediacy of somebody said something and you don't know what to say. And so they don't like calling each other on the phone or, or even talking face to face sometimes because of the potential hazard that goes on. So now let me mention the, the uh, environment that we are in right this moment has another potential social element to it. Uh, I think, I, I remember whether it was Vala or somebody else mentioning that we weren't learning certain social, uh, having social experiences. Right now, the system we're using has the ability for at least somebody to turn our microphones off. And you know, you don't get to do that when you're in a face-to-face -face environment. And so imagine that you sort of absorb a, an environment where there's control over who can speak and who can't. You can turn the camera off remotely, a bunch of other stuff. Um, I just don't know what that's going to do to our social environment. But we should probably be getting sociologists and psychologists to be asking questions like that to understand how the technology influences and affects the social environment that we experience. I think you're spot on, Vin, and I would say the, the two other things that I think are worth tracking is one, it's, it's, I'm, I'm seeing already the idea that you can connect with anybody immediately, which yes, you can do by video, but it's, 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 it's not teaching the art of planning an engagement with people or planning a meeting or something like that. It's just like, okay, let's just get on and then we'll figure out what goes. So I think that's one side. The other thing that I think that, that, that would be worth pulling on is 
what lessons can we learn from things like Fortnite or massive multiplayer, you know, games like, you know, mm -hmm. Minecraft? Because I would love to see an education experience which uses maybe the Minecraft engine, but maybe it's ancient Greece or maybe it's uh, Europe during the medieval ages or something like that. And mm -hmm. so, um, but again, we got to get make sure we get access and internet for everyone. So we have to address that. But once we do that, I mean, can you imagine taking a field trip, you know, as a group to a virtual world that just happens to be the Renaissance or something like that? I mean, that would be very interesting in my opinion, but maybe, uh, maybe I'm biased, so. We had uh, uh, some interesting questions. Oh, sorry, Val, we got some interesting <laughs> questions here. And, and this one's from Alan Bowling, someone I've known for decades, uh, really talking about some disruptions. Elon Musk's new satellite provision program. And I, I'm sure, uh, and, and from our previous conversations, Vint, you know that topic very well. Uh, I'll start with you, so. Okay, well, first of all, uh, he has something over 200 satellites now in orbit. Uh, there were big hoo about whether they were gonna reflect light and cause problems with the astronomers or maybe even problems with the radio astronomers. And that's still, I think, TBD. Uh, but he has, uh, he's been persistent about launching the satellites and verifying that they can function. They have a, a pretty elaborate routing system that uh, will get even more elaborate with 20,000 satellites involved. Um, I, I, I've always wondered about the end point economics of all this, you know, how affordable will it be? I mean, it may work beautifully, but it could turn out to be expensive. Uh, although it's a lot less expensive to launch using his current rocket uh, collection than the previous ones. So there's, uh, we, we have to see how the economics work out. If it works out well, it will be dramatic because there won't be a square inch of the planet that you can't get access to the internet from, in which case escape from the internet is now impossible as a result. Uh, so we have to see how the economics work out. We have to see how the, um, the technical uh, challenges work out in terms of routing and all the other stuff, and also whether there are side effects that, uh, that have to be overcome. But on the whole, I would say it's, a, it's certainly an ambitious uh, attempt, and it's, it's worth it to find out whether this works. I mean, I, I'm on somebody else's nickel, and so I'm, you know, I'm happy that, that I'm, an observer, I'm a, an observer of all this. But as, it's okay. I'm going to be getting into the Faraday cage business, but keep going. <laughs> I'm going to invest in a startup to do underwater vacations. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you think you're going to be free? We're going to find some ways to deliver it through sonar, through radio waves. Um, hey, we've I've, already done that, David. Yeah, the, I know. The interplanetary network can be used by the Navy. Yeah, there's really nowhere you can escape. But so two, a couple of things is first, uh, I think you heard it first that Vince announcing there's going to be a new Hollywood movie called Escape from the Internet that's coming out to the theater near you. Um, two, I would ask the question, did, did you ever imagine that, that TCP IP would be from space? I mean, I know you did later, but did like when you were in the 60s, did you see this as something that would actually be coming from space? Oh, no, because we were thirsty for this. We wanted to use it. We were excited about it. And it was very cool to do something 3,000 miles away. Something else happens now, of course. Uh, you know, we're all inundated by email and we have endless numbers of video conferences. Uh, you know, do we ever get out of our chairs from in our basements? So uh, escape from the Internet is starting to sound attractive. <laughs> I think it's a holiday Steven resort. Steven J.J. Abrams, if you're watching now, uh, yes. well, we want rights. <laughs> and, and, and we know for sure the sequel to the movie will be Escape from Artificial Intelligence. And, uh, so I want to, <laughs> we had, we right. had the CEO of uh, MIT uh, lab spun startup on the show a month or so ago, and she talked about using uh, machine learning and it 
thousands of photos fed into a classifier in order to be able to study facial recognition during video, are you leaning in? Are you smiling? Your eyes? To be able to detect tone and sentiment, perhaps your ability to absorb and learn. Uh, so as we talk about ethical use of technology, and we did talk about you know, uh, control and how potentially AI can be used to control engagement and help facilitators and moderators know when they're looking at a Brady Bunch square of uh, you know, individuals watching remotely through digital, which one is losing interest, which one's taking notes and excited. Can you, what are your thoughts about you know, advancements in AI in terms of gauging engagement, gauging potential learning capability, and, and then providing prescriptive uh, and, 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 and augmented intelligence to folks that are presenting or facilitating to perhaps find ways to engage more or, or, or less? So a, a couple of interesting touch points that might inform that. Um, shortly after COVID-19 started happening, you may have seen a story that there were seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds that figured out how to pre-record themselves watching in, rapidly with intention. And they actually played that to spoof the uh, teachers thinking that they were listening to the classes. And so <laughs> I think any future that My begins to use AI to that. assess how you're doing, there will be an underground market that will create the ability to make it look like you are paying absolute attention and you are so spotted. So I think we need to be ready for that. But then the other thing I would say is, Notice uh, I'm leaning in. I'm leaning in as you're talking. <laughs> you're leaning in. You're ruling out. But Sorry. the other thing I'd say is we need to be aware of the geopolitical dimension. <laughs> so, so what we talked about real quick with SpaceX and with providing internet from space, I think that's going to challenge more closed societies because how are they going to do information control when you can fly over now and now in theory, if their uh, people have antenna access, what does that look like? But I would say AI, on the other hand, challenges more open societies. Go ahead, Vint. So David, there is this little problem because mm -hmm. it's one thing to receive a signal. It's something else to transmit one. And if you're transmitting right. signals and somebody can detect that. And oh yeah, exactly. Easy. Then you're kind of waving your hand saying, hi, I'm transmitting up to the satellite. And the next thing you get is Anti but remember the Cold War, though. The Cold War, at least in theory, was it was information coming into the Soviet Union that they didn't want to have, and then they had an underground mimeograph machine. So yes, I, I agree that it may very well be they don't want to have even the information coming in that says, you know, your government says Tiananmen Square never happened, and oh, by the way, here it did. And by the way, in Cuba, that's exactly how they were distributing internet content. People would go to a place where they could get it, copy it on the disc, bring it back to Cuba, and then copy the disc around. Sneaker net. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, go ahead, Melissa. Oh, no, I, I, I just wanted to throw out the idea that I think, you know, there's always positives and negatives to a technology. AI uh, may not, for these purposes, I think, is generally not good from a control mechanism because it's unreliable and can be spoofed. But I do think from the perspective of like, we're doing interesting research right now on how to tell if you're sick before you really even know your symptomatic from your phone, from your gait, from your sort of energy level, the way you interact. There are so many opportunities for this technology to allow for different types of positive interventions through health, through education, that aren't about a control mechanism, but more about an opt-in. And so I think that we need to be thoughtful about balancing it. I also think AI is very clearly at its best at the moment when you're in a, in a sort of type of decision-making process that you're gonna wanna repeat a lot of times, right? 
where a lot of people are sort of going through the same process and repeating it. I don't think AI is really very close, and I work a lot on AI. I don't think we're super close to being able to throw AI out into the wild and let it see things it's never seen and just act for us. So I don't worry too much about it taking over right away because it's pretty brittle, it's not very resilient, and I can break it. So I don't know. <laughs> but are you worried? But Melissa, are you worried about chatbots? So, so there's a part, I'm writing a new book, and in it we're talking about decision velocity and decisions per second, right? And OODA, OODA cycles, right? Right, observe, you know, like the whole detect, analyze, assess. Now the, the, the question is like, if machines are making decisions per second and humans are making them in hours, right? Then we get in some very interesting scenarios, right? Especially what's going on with disinformation campaigns, uh, which, which is where I'm trying to take you guys to, <laughs> which is the next question. I'm really not about yeah. debate yet, and I'm going to punt that to Vent and David, but I am. <laughs> She's throwing a grenade to us. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think this idea of uh, allowing the speed of an interaction to be dictated by someone else or something else is a choice. And so there's a really interesting opportunity here to step back and think about strategic capability and not just be drawn in to act point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint, but to actually step back and say, this may need to happen at this pace for a bit. How am I going to invent the high-speed train that gets me out of the marathon, that breaks all the rules and gets me over the finish line first? And I'm now out of that little loop completely. And so, I'm just betting on more creativity and being able to step out of this OODA loop that we're getting dragged into and victims and start being actually more strategic about how we bring those capabilities to bear. So, you know, we, we typically fall into this part of the conversation um, because of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'd like to remind everybody that with the Internet of Things, we have billions of devices with programs in them that are running more or less autonomously. Uh, and they're making decisions all the time. There may not be very important ones, like is it, is it, should I turn on the cooling system or not to keep the ice cream from freezing? But if there are mistakes that are in the, in the software, and there very well might be if somebody isn't paying attention to what software is put into that box because they just want to get the box out the door and thank you, I have your money, goodbye. Uh, you know, forget about updates and things like that. So, so I'm much more worried, frankly, about uh, poorly uh, crafted software, regardless of whether it's AI or ML or anything else, uh, than I am about the immediate concerns for machine learning, except, of course, for uh, any autonomous decision-making that has biases that, and, and the decisions could have major consequences. Uh, and, and amplifying what, what Vince said, I think we do need to recognize and this gets a little bit to what you were talking about with the grenade that you tossed away, Ray, on misinformation, disinformation. We're already at about 35 to 45 billion network devices on the planet relative to about 7.7 .7 billion people. And current projections conservatively are in two years or less, there'll be 10 times as many network devices as there are people. And I think that's where we actually do need to spend some dedicated thinking to say, how do we make sure we don't become surveillance state? Because that's going to look really attractive to certain societies that are already on that path. We need to figure out what is a different path that gives people choice, choice involving their data. So it's so all these goodness things that the most have talked about. Because I do worry that we've engineered our society right now to reward, to reward, I won't say fast thinking, but fast action. And maybe yeah, the rapid engagement, rapid action yeah. is, is being rewarded because of the way the clickbait and the ad networks work. 
it makes money. It, 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 and if you take your time, if you're slow, you look like you're hesitant. Somehow you're holding back. Why aren't you responding? And so, but at the same time, we know that this is completely foreign to our environment. That for most of our time as a species, you ran into 80 people in your entire lifespan and your immediate family members. You didn't have these events that were abstract, half a world away and disconnected. And so we're operating in an environment that's foreign to us. And that's presenting cognitive biases, confirmation biases. That's also causing the prejudice and the, the extremism that's also happening. And so how do we overcome, I think, the human element? Because we've had misinformation, disinformation before. I mean, Thomas Jefferson and John, John Adams, they did it to each other back then. Uh, 1890s, Pulitzer, I mean, he did it as well. So it's not new. What's different is this has become such a different cognitive environment than we humans are used to. We've got to think about what are the choices we want to make to make sure we don't become a surveillance state where gossip and rumor spreads much faster than any semblance of deep thought and, and reality. That's a great point. I'm going to switch topics since we spent a lot of time on disruption. Um, let's jump back to empathy in digital companies. And uh, the first question we have here is really seeing lots of gaps of haves and have nots in both society and in companies. Uh, how do we create empathy for those in the non-digital world? Anyone want to start with that? So I'll hop on that real quick because it relates to sort of what we we're already talking about. I think we need to create experiences that allow you to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Uh, I think you know that's the challenges we've got is unfortunately right now, whether it's through publications or through algorithms that match like with like, we are, we are getting reinforced insights that match our existing views of the world, but we're not getting the views that challenge our views or make us um, more, more, more worldly in our nature. And I think that's where, you know, in the past when you could travel, the moment you traveled outside your own country, you began to realize that yes, things are different, but they're also human and they're similar too. Uh, you could see, um, even within your own country, you could also see what, you know, different states, uh, different ways that people were treated and maybe people who are marginalized. But we're missing that in the digital realm because a lot of people aren't traveling outside their own experience, whether it be digitally or for real. And so I would love to figure out how we make that happen. The moment we start to be able to do more travel, I would love for someone to actually, and this is just a crazy idea, but I've been talking about it with other folks in the Atlanta Council. What if you had someone donate a million dollars for a thousand bus tickets? And what you're going to do is you're going to take 500 people from rural areas and match them with families in urban areas and 500 people from urban areas and match them with people in rural areas. Give them one week and a bus ticket to go back and forth. Encourage them to share on the Internet their experiences before they do the trip, while they're doing the trip and afterwards. But it really is that. people, if you're a high schooler or a college kid or even if you're a retiree, you're in your 60s or 70s, let's just get people to start cross-mingling and realize at the end of the day, we're all human because I think we're missing that right now. And I worry under lockdown, we're missing those chances to actually begin to oh, Totally agree. It's every time I'm like in a large major city, people are like, the environment, it's completely destroyed. You know, all the trees are gone. I'm like, uh, you're living in London. Can you go like 20 miles west? <laughs> Tell me what you see. <laughs> There's lots of greenery, right? Let's put this into perspective, right? Or people in the city or people in the country have different types of like, you know, perspectives. But it's not just that. Imagine augmented reality, mixed reality coming in play where you can put a day in the life of someone in a shanty town, a day in the life of someone in a different type of job a day in the life and really creating that so that we can, you know, have diversity of thought as well as some level of tolerance. So pretty cool. Like Vint, Melissa, what do you have to that? Yeah, I feel like every time someone says something is stupid or something, they should be forced to do a virtual reality of life, <laughs> be living that experience for like a long period of time. Um, something that people may not know about me is I've actually road tripped in all 50 states. Um, oh, I've wow. driven oh, awesome. I think I've officially been to all 50 capitals. Wow. Um, 
And the thing that I love about it, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up in small towns. I mean, I can remember when I went to grad school in Tucson, Arizona, calling my mom and saying, there's a mall and an airport in the town. I had never lived anywhere that had a mall and an airport. It was blowing my mind, right? And I was 23 by the time I had that experience. And then I lived in DC and I lived in London and I lived in, uh, in Santiago, Chile. And I, I, I had all these experiences in Chicago, um, but I, I never lost this love of just like driving to the middle of Nevada and going into a diner and asking, what should I order? What's the special? Just for so cool. So cool. What would I do if I was Guy Fiore? <laughs> <laughs> I wish that for more people because I certainly don't agree with everyone I've ever met, but God, I've had some good times with some people I had nothing in common with. <laughs> so, you know, we, we ought to give some thought to the fact that you don't need the bus ticket if you're going to use these online environments. And mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that it's the equivalent, not, not for a moment, but the fact is that we can make it possible for people to interact who might otherwise never have the opportunity to do that because they can't afford that bus ticket so uh, or, or airplane uh, ticket. So, so we ought to be thinking about whether the online interactive experience, it, while it's different from face-to-face, -face, it's not quite the same as sharing a meal, except that I have had dinners or lunches online and, and they are not too far apart from, from you know, having a pleasant uh, lunch with somebody. Uh, you just can't share the other person's food. I agree, actually. Well, Vin, and actually, that was the the counterpart. I would say that that the easier way to scale this up, and we'd have to see what the differences were versus in person. Imagine if you got matched with a pin pal, and it wasn't initially revealed that this pin pal was completely different than you. And so you actually just started writing back and forth. And then about three months or four months in, it begins to reveal that, by the way, this individual's from Savannah, Georgia. You're coming from Seattle, Washington, or something like that. And, and you, 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 you abstract the things that pull people apart. And you initially bring them in saying, look, you both like to ride your bicycle, or you both like to take walks in parks or things like that. Could the internet help us reinvent what pen pals are for the digital era to bring people together? So now I have to tell you that there's an interesting technical problem. Uh, somebody mentioned, I think it was Melissa, uh, virtual reality. Uh, do you know how that works today? You put this headset on and you look at yeah. Darth Vader. So imagine you're trying to do a video conference in virtual reality. If you actually use the camera, you'd look like Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Of course, that doesn't work. So now you have to have an avatar. And, and the result of that is a whole new business where you could buy whatever avatar you want. You could, you know, it could be your own face with kind of improved, like I could have hair and things like that. <laughs> so, so you imagine new businesses arising as a consequence of the technology we use to communicate with each other. Yeah. Do you I all mean, remember how Second Life was set up or the sun yeah, Sun had yeah. those like very, very interesting orbs in Project Looking Glass? I mean, that's some very cool yeah. stuff. And Second Life, actually, I have to give a shout out to Ben Kaczynski at Emory. We had the only part of Second Life that was visited by a president. Uh, president Jimmy Carter visited Second Life in 2007. Mm -hmm. This is when I was doing my PhD. They kept that island because it was a historical landmark, but President Jimmy Carter actually paid a visit. So, uh, And they actually did have some people walking around with him that were supposedly Secret Service in Second Life. The Historical facts from Dr. Gray, second to none, second to none. What, what does an ideal digital engagement look like? Uh, you know, Ray and I, this is, we've interviewed 596 guests over the last four years. My favorite part of the week is Fridays because I get to sit back and, as, as a student, learn from the best and brightest in the world. So 
you know, I, I feel like you know this is it's, it's a great thing for us to learn. But like Dr. David Gray, what do you what do you look for when? What was the last time you had a digital engagement? And you just felt inspired and you yeah. felt motivated. What What were some of the elements? That, well, that I, I would say it was probably the last one we did with Malcolm Turnbull. So I would give kudos to what you and Vala and Ray do. I would say oh, he energy. was extraordinary. He was extraordinary. <laughs> uh, but I think it's energy, um, a sense of it, actually what it may very well be is research has shown that groups make better decisions when three factors are present. When there's turn-taking in the conversation, there's active mm -hmm. listening. And what's also interesting is they found there's a third variable that might be linked to the other two, which is actually a higher ratio of women to men, uh, which again, maybe they're more active listening, maybe they're more taking turns. But I think if those things are present, whether it's physical or digital, I feel more engaged. The other thing I would say is if the experience leaves me, leaves me wondering, you know, how is Vala doing? How is Melissa doing? If it makes me think about what are you doing when we actually are done with the conversation, then that to me is a tremendously successful digital experience. Very cool. You know, uh, David, the taking turns thing is actually an indicator of respect. And so I think if we dig a little deeper into the success there, it's not the fact that you're taking turns, but that you had respect enough for each other to take turns mm -hmm. and respect for people's intentions I know that uh, some of the most successful collaborations still involve fairly dramatic uh, interactions. And I, I have personal experience with a number of those, but they were, they were never personal in the sense of you dumbass, you know, this is a stupid idea I've ever heard. It's like, I don't think that's gonna work for the following reasons. Or have you considered this? And, and it can get very tense as I did and no you didn't. But, but if everybody in the group recognizes that we're, they are all aimed at trying to get a particular thing done, yes, and you respect everybody's intent to do that, then uh, you can tolerate some fairly intense interactions, but it starts with a respect for other people's views and intentions. I want to double down on that a little bit. I think that um, the idea that you can respect someone and that you can uh, create trust that you're respectful, even though you're debating, is really critical. And I think mission and that common mission that you discussed then is key to that. The idea that we really believe that we are trying to get to the same goal it, and that maybe we're exploring different ways to get there and that maybe we really believe and we're quite passionate about it, but we trust that actually the intention, the mission is the same. Um, and I, I feel like that leaves you with a lot more excitement. I also feel like there's this improv thing that people talk about with this yes and, and it's pretty commonly discussed, but it really does matter if you're in a conversation who, or with people who are like, yes, and think about this, and, and they build on each other rather than it being like, you feel like everyone's sitting waiting to say their prepared thing and move on. One of the reasons yeah. I'm so excited to engage, I think, with this group of folks over the last several months is I never feel like it's a prepared, like, little speech that everyone's trying to get their turn to take, right, to make. No, you feel like, no it's not about talking points. It's, yeah, it's really yeah, about the you hit the You hit the nail on the head, Melissa. I never have any talking points. <laughs> I'm never prepared. <laughs> so, hey, so let's, let's, let's jump in on polarization real quickly. I mean, today is, what, the 75th anniversary of the United Nations Charter. I think, Vint, you were doing some things earlier today. Uh, originally signed here in San Francisco on June 26, 1945. 
I mean, that's mm-hmm. six weeks after the war in Europe, if I remember. Um, and, and this is, you know, something huge, right? So let's talk a little bit about it. Social media seems to be primed for this engagement and conflict, right? And the gamification that's been there, it's really about hitting all the buttons of serotonin, getting you really excited and angry about something instead of using logic. Um, and it sounds like we're almost primed to create a world of scared, angry, and upset people. Is, this, is there a way to back down? I know we kind of touched on this earlier. Well, uh, I, if, David, did you want to go ahead? No, you go first, Ben. I'll go after you. Well, I'm thinking about the reward system, which leads to the kinds of uh, polarization uh, and extremism that you see in the social media. I, I think we really need to step back and ask ourselves uh, how to shift the reward system in such a way that it does not reward extreme things that attract attention because that's really how the reward system works. It's attracting attention is rewarded. And at the moment, the fastest way to attract attention is to do something atrocious, say something horrible, uh, you know, put up a horrible image. Uh, Everyone will say, holy crap, did you see that? And I don't quite know, I'm not a good enough uh, psychologist to know what the right alteration is, but we need to to change the reward structure so that we don't create the same incentives that we currently see. I want to amplify 100% what Vint just said. Uh, The research shows the number one way to make something go viral is to make it hateful. Number two ways to make it fearful. Um, The other challenge that we're discovering is that um, saying X is not true, nobody remembers the not true bit. Um, More facts do not sway people once their confirmation bias has kicked in. So again, we've created an environment that is flooded with information, some of it true, some of it not. And the challenge is, is we've fallen into the trap that our brains aren't really ready for this. I mean, it, it's actually a human side. It's not a technology challenge. And, and I think the question is, we do celebrate freedom of speech. I think we should, we should continue to celebrate that. But you know, even, even Mills said, shouting fire in a theater where you put people's lives in danger, that, that's actually something that should not be considered free speech. And so we've got to figure out how do we balance that and how do we do so in a way that it's not, it's not monitored by government, because I don't think one could leave this to government to do. But at the same time, I'm not sure it's necessary industry, because again, industry's got different focuses as well. So maybe we need citizen groups that sort of serve, like congratulations, you've got six months in which you are going to help serve to try and encourage more productive dialogue or something like that. But I think we're, we're missing bridge builders. And, and I think we're coming face to face with the fact that our brains aren't ready for this digital environment we're going into to operate more collaboratively at scale. I feel like, I mean, the research has showed, Pew says uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, more than 50% of both Republicans and Democrats are not likely and will not even consider dating someone from the other party. Like even before they met them, even before they got wow. to know them, they will write them off. And this was April. This was before everything else sort of even came to head. And so if people are writing people off simply because of the label of their political party, I don't know what that goes to. That seems to me a, an in-group versus out-group problem. We should not- a Massive tribalism. <laughs> we should absolutely not be surprised at this. If you ever looked at sports teams and how closely bound people feel to them Watch a typical soccer game in Europe, and I'm not, I'm not picking on you in particular. Watch a soccer game and look at what happens after one team wins and the other team loses. You know, not only do they hate the other team, but they hate anybody who likes that other team. And it's very tribal. It's very Part tribal, and we've reinforced that. Part yeah. of the go up when your sports team loses. It's like they've done they've done research on it, and heart attacks actually spike after like 
your Super Bowl team loses, it's crazy. I want to throw out one idea, which is I want some filters on social media that are like sentiment analysis and that and that show me this is a mid-range sentiment. These this person, and I want instead of a check for they're famous, I want to check mark by names of people who are like they really never go to the extremes. Like the sentiment here goes a little bit both ways. Um, I want the choice to find more neutral, not just neutral, but more sort of constrained people who think are more thoughtful about how they put things forward. Um, I also think tribalism is actually biological, right? This is this is an evolutionary thing where we have a group of a group we trust that are going to help us survive, and so. How do we make cross-tribal engagement meaningful, right? Where it's not just me and another person somewhere else creating a new tribe. It's actually my city has this sister city or my town has a sister town. And as a community, we contribute to each other's education. We we send each other, you know, garden seeds from things we like. I mean, these things seem mundane, but they're very human. And if you do things more collectively, Melissa, it's an uh, it's a great point. I don't think our leaders are trying to do that anywhere, and and I, especially in election year, this has been very hard. So I mean, no, in I, fact, I tried, uh, I, I, real quick on that point, Ray. So back in October, I you know, and you know, I'm a good nonpartisan, but I created a group called the Spark Initiative, where I invited people who were moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans, but also wanted to heal the nation. I invited them to have non-attribution conversations about what could we do putting aside politics to heal the nation. Mm -hmm. And people on both sides of the political aisle said the challenge is, is right now it's really hard to build data models to convince political candidates how they will win by playing the middle. It's very easy to build one as to how you play by inflaming your base, but it's very hard to build the middle. And so maybe what we need to do is have dialogues about how do we engage the middle? How does that become? Because otherwise, again, we're going to fork. But the other thing I would also say is maybe it's not something that we need to look to our leaders to do. Maybe what we need to do is look to shared shared experiences we can do, whether at the local level, state level, or national level. I mean, you look at certain countries, I'm not saying we do conscription, I'm not saying we do that, but that actually serves to bind people. So maybe what we need to have is, given that COVID-19 has introduced all this uncertainty, at some point in time, we should be able to get back together. Whether you're in high school, college, again, if you're in mid-career or if you're a retiree, what's your one to two years of service that you choose to do? And it's again, meant to both expose you to something different, but also create something that you can then, when you later meet someone and say, Ray, what was your what was your service experience? And what was that like? I mean, my wife was in the Peace Corps. I mean, whenever you get other Peace Corps people together, even if they were in different countries, it's just amazing the kinship that they have. So, so something like that, because I think we lack, I look at when the nation came together, it was you know when we had a revolution that brought us together. Uh, the tragedy of World War II, which actually created United Nations, that brought us together. But now we have people that have forgotten what United, you know, what World War II was and how bad that that really made the world in terms of what we face and how we pulled away from that. So, what is the shared experience that's needed for now, 2020, beyond just COVID-19 happened, beyond just we're now focusing on the need for more social justice? What's that shared experience we can all look to? Let's start there. That's a good lightning round. Uh, you know, anyone have any ideas? We'll jump in. I, I like the Peace Corps thing, and I like the you know maybe we have our own internal Peace Corps where, where people from different you know, jurisdictions match to each other. Vin, go ahead. So, well, uh, certainly uh, the Peace Corps also allowed people to experience cultures other than their own, and that is always a mind-expanding experience. You begin to learn to tolerate differences and recognize that differences are not necessarily uh, you know a, a threat. 
whereas uh, we hear a lot right now because of the racism that's uh, research uh, research racism here and invisible racism in the U.S. We're hearing a lot about um, the fear of the other. Anything that isn't like you or like your group is potentially a threat, and that's a, that's a, probably might have been an evolutionary social social evolutionary uh, survival mechanism, perhaps, but certainly harmful in this environment. I do have two reactions. One of them is to learn to stifle thyself. This is getting back into the tolerance for uh, for uh, disagreement or tolerance tolerance from differences, tolerance from different points of view. Learning and accepting that it's valuable to withhold your reactions. Uh, use you know let let the the frontal lobe work. Is important, and what we're seeing in the social media, of course, is the injection of content that bypasses any kind of uh, consideration and goes straight to your fears, uh, and that's a serious problem. The second thing which everybody has heard me crow about is critical thinking, uh, and it, you need to learn to want to do that. You need to learn how to do that uh, in order to protect yourself from harmful misinformation and disinformation, which is too easy to accept. And the, the most pernicious thing about misinformation and disinformation is that it is often packaged with a little bit of truth that you recognize. And it's the untruth that you don't know anything about that you assume must be true because you saw something else in this material that you did know to be true. Uh, it's a terrible trick. Uh, but it takes uh, it, it's taking advantage of human psychology. You had uh, you had Tom Peters uh, on our show a couple of weeks ago, and he just strongly emphasized hire for EQ, promote for EQ. We need to teach critical thinking, not cynicism. We need to teach empathy. We need to teach kindness, mindfulness. So he was just for an hour reminding Ray and I that uh, you know, to, to success, you, you know, you may achieve success with IQ, but respect and longevity and, and goodness is, is EQ. And as Jack Ma once said, LQ, love quotient. So it's a combination of, combination of things that we need to learn at, at, in high school and early on all the way through our career. So really great, oh, great point. points. Just hey, Melissa, that. David, last words. Yeah. Go ahead. I would just throw out that I think that we spend a lot of time talking about communication and service and that often places people in the center, like I'm doing this good thing for you. And it tends to make them listen less and try to project more. And I think I'll just build on what Vince said that learning to stifle yourself a little bit, but also learning to place yourself in um, an equal scenario with people so I'm coming to teach you. That doesn't mean I'm not getting anything from you. And maybe in order to effectively teach, I need to learn something about you first. And so for me, I think that we're best as a country when we're doing things bottom up. And I want to see a sort of Peace Corps for America that isn't about, I'm here to do something good for you. It's like, I'm here to pull my weight while I learn. And that, that's what I want. So, hey, Melissa, Nicole, Nicole France from our team was commenting. What, what happened to AmeriCorps uh, in 1993? Was that part of that? Is it still around? I think it's, it is still around. It's still around, but it really never. I think I just don't think that it's been committed to. And I think this would be a great moment to recommit to something like that and bring technology to it. Imagine what AmeriCorps could be. Every company in America poured support into making that virtual to making it present everywhere. 
right, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring it home for you, uh, Vala and Ray, by integrating what Vint said and what Melissa said. And I don't want to put you on the spot, so I apologize if I do. But perhaps Disruptive could actually sponsor, uh, maybe with some corporate support or some support from different groups, uh, scholarships for people who are showing high EQ. And it's going to help them, whether it's getting their undergrad degree, their master's degree, if they're from historically underrepresented groups. But as part of the scholarship is they sign up to spend some time using social media to bring people together. That also produces content for you. So you can actually interview them and say how it's going. But it's the idea that you're selected because you're someone that's a bridge builder across different groups. And that's actually, again, rewarding EQ and helping people get degrees. One of the things that we actually would love to partner with you on the Atlantic Council is we feel like there's not enough people from historically underrepresented groups in data and data science. So particularly for masters and PhDs, we feel like if we don't have data scientists be diverse and representative in nature, uh, we're going to be in challenges about a decade from now. So not this, to put that spot, but this that's show, This show has always been missing a big EQ executive producer. So thank you. <laughs> you <laughs> all right. Out there <laughs> happy to work for free. Anything I can do with you all, happy to help. <laughs> we're so happy to have everyone here. Vince Surf, Fife's president and chief internet evangelist, also known as the father of the internet. Melissa, <laughs> thank you so much. Miss LaFlag, senior fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. And of course, of course, Dr. David Bray, Director of the Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at the Atlantic Council. This is episode number 196. Thank you so much for an insightful and engaging discussion. So Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you on the net. Yes. <laughs> See you on the net. <laughs> exactly. What am I, hearing that from the, one of the fathers of the net is so cool. <laughs> no better endorsement than that. Right. <laughs> so. Just what a privilege. Oh my God, I just need to, I'm gonna watch this episode again and again and again. It's, uh, there was so much like nuggets of wisdom uh, that uh, Dr. Flagg and, and uh, uh, Ben Surfer and Dr. Bray shared. It's, it's just, my mind is spinning right now. It's, well, it's we'll catch up with them in the green room afterwards uh, for a quick discussion. But in the meantime, what do we have? What's going on? we got some special shows coming up in <laughs> we the do. next few we, weeks. We do. So next Friday, we're taking off. It's a day before 4th of July. Oof. So we, oh we don't God, have a yeah. show <laughs> next Friday. Uh, but, you know, actually, we're on, a, we're on track to do more than 52 shows this, this year because we're doing special shows. So believe it or not, we're going to have more, probably more than one show a week when 2020 ends. Speaking of special shows, on July 7th, uh, which is not a Friday, we have a special edition with John Hagel, who's a management consultant, speaker, led the uh, at, uh, Center for the Edge at Deloitte, and one of the one of the, just the biggest brains when it comes to new business model innovation. He coined yeah. the term infomediaries 20 years ago, and that's yeah. what we're all doing right now. So we'll, we'll, drop, we'll drop into that as well as some of his other thoughts. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's brilliant. So we have a special show, and he's our uh, sole guest. And then we return uh, on that Friday that week, so July 10th, with Nick Mahata, CEO of Gainsight. Nick is an extraordinary storyteller. Sharon Vindarine, experienced founder, CEO of Parent, tested parents approved. And uh, a re return guest, Dr. Janice Presser, TeamingScience.com. She's an author and someone who's extraordinary in terms of making sure you have the right IQ, EQ, LQ to build a strong team. So that's the show Friday, July 10th. Uh, Ray, closing uh, remarks on uh, maybe one of our most extraordinary shows we've had this year. You know, I, I think there's a lot pulling us apart. I think we need to focus on moving forward, coming together, but it requires us to really think about 
uh, different views, really seeing people in different points of view, uh, whether it's the racism issue here in the U.S. or maybe it's uh, based on skin color around the world, which has also been an issue historically out there, or thinking about different ways political parties are thinking or just thinking about, hey, maybe we are under attack and people are trying to tear us apart. Uh, there's a lot of things that we, we can really gain from perspective. A little tolerance and a little bit of patience. Uh, if you go out and destroy things, please, 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 please think about it before you go jump out and do that. Uh, but, but also try to understand each other's sides. And, and I think that's important. I, I know I get accused a lot on Twitter for pointing out different things. Uh, it's intentional, right? I'll take the heat. I'm happy to broker the conversation. Uh, as you can tell, it's, it's, it's tiring. It's, it's, some people say it's tiring. I'm, no, I actually think it's important, right? And, and, and there's a role for that. So don't think I'm completely crazy. I'm, I'm just trying to pull people together. So, but I think that's important. And I think we all have our part to do and everyone's going to do it in a different way. So, so very, very important. What about you, Bala? Balance and perspective and, uh, uh, and stay teachable. The reason why this is my favorite day of the week is because I get to learn from, again, the best and brightest people in the world, and that helps me stay teachable. Uh, be, you know, have an open mind, be curious, balance and perspective, be kind, you know, be kind. Uh, be, and, kind. Uh, be kind, everyone. Yeah, That's a great yeah, absolutely. Uh, Take care, everyone. We'll Happy Friday. Two weeks. Happy Friday. <laughs> Two weeks. Happy Friday. Bye,